Are you a current or future physician assistant wanting to learn more about finances? Then join me on this journey to become a PA the FI way. Hi, my name is Kat and I'm a practicing certified physician assistant who will be your host. It took me five years after I started practicing medicine as a PA to thoroughly dive into my personal finances after I discovered the concept of financial independence. I want to use what I have learned to help you avoid some of the financial mistakes that I have made while sharing some of the financial wins that I have had along the way. Join me as we discuss financial strategies to guide you to becoming a physician assistant on the way to financial independence. Welcome back to the PA the FI Way podcast. I'm your host, Kat, and this is the podcast for all the PAs out there that are pursuing financial independence. Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Paul. He also goes by Lambo, the Phylighter, and he's the creator of the Phylighter podcast and blog. He is actually our first guest who has achieved financial independence and has actually fired or retired early. I'm so excited to have him share with us his triple seven which will be the seven biggest financial wins that he has had, the seven biggest financial mistakes that he has had along the way, and seven points of advice for millennials. Paul, would you please tell us how in the world did you get the nickname Lambo, and why do you go by Lambo the Phylighter? Wow, great cat. That's a, that's a great kickoff question. Uh, uh, this one goes back uh, quite a bit. Back when I was in public accounting early in my career, we played in a city league uh, football team. And the quarterback, um, I was the center, and the quarterback gave me the name Lambo. Um, it was right about the time Sylvester Stallone was in the Rambo movie. Sure. And so... Uh, Lambo was his take on Rambo because I was kind of, you know, you couldn't really make contact when you blocked on the line, but you got in front of people. So I was I was Lambo from then on, and uh, you know that name kind of stuck uh, over the years. So uh, you know when I was coming up with the, you know, the podcast name and and uh, you know Lambo the Firelighter just kind of rolled for me. So I went with it and. Um, and that has been my mantra. So, uh, you know, you can call me Paul, you can call me Lambo, whatever you want to call me, I will answer any question you ask today. And just want to thank you for having me here on your show today. Really enjoy what you're doing for all the millennials out there. Uh, I think you're not unique. You know, you can share things that you're experiencing and it will help everyone. So great job getting your podcast message out there. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Do you mind sharing a little bit more about the term Phylighter? Sure. Phylighter. Yeah. Phylighter is, you know, uh, over the years I've consumed uh, a lot of um, fire type information and books and, and, and websites and blogs. Uh, but for me, um, you know, I kind of felt like my career was really rewarding and, and enjoyable. And some of the extreme early retirement type uh, approaches uh, really didn't resonate with me. But I did have a desire to be financially independent and, you know, slightly early retire. So, you know, I kind of came up with a name. I, I was sitting in a in a very long staff meeting once <laughs> and I started writing in the back of my notebook some potential names for my website. 
Uh, and cause I started the blog long before I started the podcast. So then I felt like I had an audience and I didn't really want to, to change the, you know, the website name, uh, or the podcast name. Cause I kind of felt like, it, you know, it had some clarity. So I stuck with it, but Phylighter, um, really is Phi, obviously financial independence and light early retirement. So like a slightly early retirement was my concept. So there, there you have the name Phi Light ER. So sure. uh, that's kind of the genesis of, of the Phi Lighter name. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing all of that. Do you mind sharing with us a little bit about your past career before you actually did reach fire? Sure. Yeah. I, I, um, I spent about 34 years in the traditional W-2 career, you know, working. And um, I'm a CPA. My wife is also a CPA. Uh, and so, you know, which comes into play later. I will talk a little bit more about that. But but uh, most of my career, I spent at two companies. I had a 12-year stint at an um, implantable medical device company. And uh, we did pacemakers, heart valves, orthopedic implants, and dental implants. Then I spent 19 years in an oil field service company, uh, you know, and, and the last six years of that, I really wasn't working in the financial accounting type role. It was some of the best years of my career. Uh, you know, imagine that, getting to do something that's not what you started out doing, but also along the way, I started my career in public accounting, uh, you know, and I don't know if you listen to the Choose Five podcast, but uh, yeah, it's a wonderful Brad podcast. and his wife, very similar story. The, my wife and I both also started in, in public accounting in, uh, uh, a few years earlier than, than he and his wife. But anyway, uh, we both ended up going to work for clients and then, uh, you know, eventually my wife was able to stay home for a period of time. We have three children and We've been married 31 years, but early on, uh, we really wanted that potential to be able to live on one income. Uh, and, you know, when the second child was born, my wife said, you know, I think I might want to stay home with with the kids. And this is something that we kind of planned yeah. for. Uh, we had a mortgage payment that was reasonably manageable and, and uh, only we tried to only have one car payment if we had a car payment at a time. And so she did, and then later went to work part-time. So went back to work part-time and uh, worked from home. So, you know, she was able, at that point, you know, there's there's really a kind of a, a transition because then we were all in on my career in terms of earning wages. But my point of mentioning that is there are so many things that change uh, from a dynamics point of view when uh, one person, you know, is, is the wage earner and the other person is really managing so many other things. So I didn't worry about things like renewing uh, insurance for the house or the cars or shopping for better rates. She did all those things, um, you know, and so there were so many things that she took care of. I did not have any of those distractions in my career and I could really focus on my job and working, you know, working hard and, and, uh, you know, development. And then I knew I didn't have to, to, to be concerned about all those because she was taking care of them. Now, certainly I was involved in the decision process. If she had questions or I needed to be more involved, I was, but the, the nice thing about that lifestyle, uh, is it really helped me 
professionally because, you know, those calls you used to get from the daycare when you have a child that's sick or, you know, it, it used to be very stressful uh, because one of us had to go. Was it going to be her? Was it going to be me? We had very similar jobs. Uh, we were both, you know, I wouldn't say in high stress jobs, but it was stressful in our relationship and at our job. If we were right in the middle of a big project, one of us had to put everything down and go get, go get one of our kids yeah. or and in this case, both of the kids, if they were at the daycare and went, and they were sick. Uh, so there, that's just one example, but long story short, uh, it was a great decision, uh, and, and it worked out really well. Uh, and then when she was ready to go back to work full time later, when the kids were, you know, much older, she did and, and, uh, was able to find a job and, and, um, it, that, that was rewarding. And, um, uh, and then now she's actually back to part-time, uh, and, um, it's it's worked out really well for us, and our kids are all adults at this point in time. Uh, you know, thus the the focus on my podcast, you know, being tainted toward millennials as well as slightly early retirees. You know, uh, I've got kids that are all struggling with the same things that you talk about on your podcast. So it, it's, it's kind of exciting to be able to to share and give back a little to that group. But anyway, we're coming up on one year anniversary of the Five Lighter podcast, and and uh, you know it's it's been a, a great a great uh, journey so far. Very cool. Yeah, you and I, Paul, met by taking a podcast course together, and we're part of a podcast network. So it's really cool that we were able to meet that way. You know, excellent. I think you know you bring that up, and and it's it's not an insignificant point uh, because during the COVID year, um, there were so many things that were disrupted, but. Uh, but it also pre- provided an opportunity to to start doing, um, you know, a course together, which, you know, the, the number of people that are that are members of that inaugural class and the early classes that started podcasts uh, is incredible. You know, Jonathan put together a, a great program and I had a blog, like I said, and I had the desire to do a podcast, but there were so many things I didn't know. There were things I didn't know I didn't know. And you know what I mean by that, totally. right? So uh, when, you, when you're a one-man show, you got to figure out hosting and, you know, uh, all these different things about editing and software and equipment. And going through that course, it was like a crystal clear roadmap that anybody that had the desire to move forward had no excuse at that point. So it was kind of neat how there was a little bit of a uh, of a group together that were moving through the process and we many of us launched podcasts all in the you know the early fall time frame or you know sometime in the fall of last year and so uh i'm amazed at at some of the great creativity and success that several of those students have enjoyed in their podcasts cuz the topic range is a full gamut you know uh, you and i are kind of focus more on the financial independence side. But, you know, there's an excellent uh, veterinary podcast. Um, you know, there, there's an adventure podcast. And, and uh, Heidi, I actually did an episode with Heidi on, on one of my earlier episodes, uh, interviewed her, and she has now appeared on the Choose Fi uh, episode. So she is really lighting it up. And uh, but several people have been extremely successful in pursuing their podcast dreams. And, uh, you know, I think that year was something that that gave us that gift of being able to work on these type of projects uh, that you might not have the adequate time to spend 
getting to where we are today. Yeah, exactly. It's been a really fun and growing type of project to work on. So it's something that I've really enjoyed. And I can certainly tell that you have the passion for podcasting too. So that's really fun. <laughs> I've got passion for a lot of things. <laughs> so it's something that well, it's I, a good thing you retired so early I'll, then. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll let you in on one more secret, uh, the Lambo name. You know, um, I spent a lot of my career in, in a corporate environment. And let's just say it's a little more conservative. and. You know, sometimes, you know, I, I would get a little passionate in meetings and I led st- some strategic meetings and different types of things. And, um, you know, and I call it sometimes the Lambo gets out, you know. <laughs> and so <laughs> if, if I get a little too passionate and loud, I mean, it's like that's when the Lambo came out and I couldn't hold him in, you know. Sure. And, and so over the years, gosh, you know, we all have our vices and and challenges in, in life. And, you know, there's certain professional ways you behave in the, as a PA, right? You know, there's protocols and ways, yep. you know, and, and when you're a financial guy, you know, and, and there's, there's certain things that you say and don't say. And sometimes you get a little passionate and maybe you get a little, uh, a little loud and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, I, uh, I tend to have some of those moments. And so over my career, I really had to work to keep, kind of my personality in check sometimes, <laughs> you know, you really want to, you want to be yourself, but some people can't take that much of sure. you, right? So <laughs> That's funny. And, and you also realize that everybody has something to say. So you need to be quiet and listen more. And that's, it's harder for some of us than others, but, uh, but it is something that I had to really work at personally in my career to, to make sure I kept it in Sure. Check. Well, it takes all sorts of people to make the world go round and, um, it's funny because my brother-in-law also works in the accounting industry and financial industry. He's a financial director for the city that we live in. And he is super loud and extroverted too. And it's just funny how he's in that industry because we have our you know, preconceived notions that a lot of people who do work in that industry are pretty introverted and quiet and reserved, probably a little bit more like my personality than your personality. But it's great when you have other fun people to work with and we need people that aren't afraid to speak up about things that they feel passionate about. Absolutely. I, I can imagine, you know, uh, like him, you know, I, I think people probably have no idea what I was doing at work all day and what I was really like at work because it was pretty different from my, you know, my personal life. Um, but just the same, I'm, you know, I, I definitely agree. I'm probably not your typical CPA. And uh, I want to maybe mention as we wrap up, I'll tell a story if you like. But, um, you know, I always felt in the accounting world, you know, you're kind of like, a regulator in, inside the company, people think you're all you're doing is adding up numbers and telling them what they can't do. <laughs> and and one of the things that I, I tried to do in my career was be, you know, to to inflict the least damage in terms of red tape on everything people were trying to do and try to bring value to them. Um, you know, the people in a company that are actually generating the revenue, you really need to find a way to help them. You know, and if if you can interpret information from the financial side to something that they can take action on to make more money for everybody, help them. You know, you're not just there to be the hammer and the, and the regulator. You're there to help yeah. them because guess what? If they don't make more money, you're going to suffer, too. So, you know, uh, everybody needs to be you know rowing the boat the same direction to to 
you know, what do they say? Teamwork makes the dream work, yeah. baby. That's true. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. So let's dive into your triple seven content that we're going to talk about today. The first section is about your biggest financial wins. And you touched a little bit on the first one about how your spouse helped play a role in your reaching financial independence. So do you mind sharing about that? Sure, absolutely. You know, and I I looked at these and I kind of try to put them in order by, you know, the most significant ones, uh, you know, at the top of the list. And, and there are a couple of them that are kind of, you know, marginal that could be, one could be higher than the other. But I think one on the very top of the list is is your spouse. And so who you have as a partner has a tremendous impact in uh, how you can, you know, pursue financial independence successfully. So, you know, one of the, one of the things about, um, you know, my spouse, uh, uh, as I mentioned, she's also a CPA, but we grew up in a very similar way in terms of, you know, a middle-class lifestyle. We, we enjoyed outdoor activities and, and we're both very competitive. We worked in high school and college, you know, we had side jobs and, uh, and we, we also, uh, both, you know, began our professional lives independently and, and had to figure out things like, you know, rent apartments and signing leases and buying cars and, you know, relationships at work and with other people. And, you know, basically we kind of started our, you know, our adult living, if you want to call it that, and uh, and went through all that process kind of independently of each other. But, you know, a, a quick story on my wife, uh, she had a boyfriend and I had a girlfriend in college and, and one day we were both intramural sports officials for basketball. Okay. Okay. So one, one day, uh, we get scheduled to work together on a court and, uh, she and I worked, uh, so you have different levels of intramural basketball. You have like the group class A group and B group and whatever. And we were working a class A court, which was the, you know, the most competitive league and she was a, a, an athlete. There is an athlete, I should say. And we have a three-person team. One person does the scorebook and the clock, and the other two are on the floor. Well, usually you rotate. But she and I were on the court together, and we pretty much stayed on the court all three games that night. Wow. And there was there there was a little chemistry, but, you know... <laughs> Long story short, that's how I met my wife, sure. and uh, we're both in accounting classes in a, in in a large university. And you know, I don't remember talking to her much uh, in classes, but then a couple years out of school, we went to a university happy hour function, and uh, you know, in a large metropolitan city area where we work, and we reconnected. And so, long story short. Uh, that's that's how my wife and I got together, and uh, but we both were working in accounting firms at the time, and and um, I had just actually just transitioned to the medical device business, and um, and she was still working in public accounting. But uh, anyway, very similar backgrounds, and we're both very uh, conservative from a spending point of view, um, and you know it really makes it easier when you're both fairly frugal. Uh, I, I was, uh, I was chatting with somebody the other day. One of the hard things about that transition to retirement is you're now spending money instead of saving money. Yeah. And when you've saved money all your life, it's so hard 
to take the money out and spend it on your expenses sure. because you know it's not going to be replenished from a job. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you're not going to have dividend income and and equity appreciation and all those things, but it's a very large mind shift to to start spending what you were saving. So anyway, that's that's a long way of saying picking your spouse is really important and and even if you have big differences on spending if you can kind of work together to find common ground and say, you know, these are the reasons I think financial independence is worth pursuing. It's important. And having that longer term vision uh, that you can share with a partner that says, you know, realistically, we could retire in 20 years. And, and 20 years sounds like a long time. But think about it. That's like 40, 42, 45, whatever. That's extremely early given the common standards today. Yeah. So anyway, exactly. uh, spouse is important. Yeah, definitely. Many people in the financial independence community talk about how there are usually two types of people. Usually someone is either a spender or a saver. And it sounds like in your guys' case, two savers probably got married, which is excellent. Sometimes it can be challenging in a relationship <laughs> if one's a spender and one's a saver But I think, too, a lot of times people will kind of fall a little bit more in the middle ground in different areas of their life. But it can be really challenging if both people are spenders. So I do think that it's important that you try to find the balance of what you really value, what you do feel like you need to and want to spend money on. And my husband and I are always trying to find the balance of spending on hobbies and toys and fun now when we are young and can enjoy them versus trying to save aggressively and invest aggressively so we can retire early if we would like to in the future. So I think that it's great that you two found each other. Excellent. Yeah, I think your your point's a good one. You know, um, you don't need to live a life of deprivation to be financially independent. And um, one of the things that I like to say, you know, my dad and I were having a conversation many years ago, and somehow we came came to this statement or a quote, but basically life happens on the yellow brick road, not at Emerald City. So in the case of Wizard of Oz, you know, you know, think of yourself as Dorothy going down that road. Life is happening every day. So, you know, finding that balance, and this is one of the reasons that I kind of focus on slightly early retirement, maybe, you know, more so than extremely early retirement, because, you know, continuing to have an income uh, and disposable income where you grow the gap and have money to spend, you can invest that money, you can spend that money. But if life experiences, you know, come and go. And and so don't deprive yourself of things that are truly meaningful along the way. If it's a reasonable financial cost and you've got it in a budget, live your life, enjoy those times. Uh, because I can tell you, looking back, you know, there were a couple of things that I wished I would have loosened the purse a little more on. And it was probably more me than my wife, you know, that that uh, had a harder time, you know, letting go. But that's something that uh, you really, I think it's it's a, a great point that you make. You you kind of have to balance things and and pick where you need to cut back and the things you value. Spend money on them. Definitely. You know, there are things that we value and we spend on, uh, and and there are things that I've learned that we probably you know, could cut cost on uh, or do away with because their time has passed and we no longer get joy out of those type of things. Anyway, good point. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate that. And let's move on to your second biggest financial win, which was career choice. 
Yeah, as I mentioned, my wife and I are both CPAs. And, uh, you know, we went to work uh, in the big eight public accounting firms back when there were eight of them. And, um, and my point here is we pick careers in accounting. And accounting is uh, by no means the most lucrative job coming out of college, okay? Uh, but I can tell you it's a rock-solid uh, role and uh, reasonable pay and compensation. And the other point that I think is equally important is not only that career choice, but also the fact that accounting and financial uh, people are needed in basically any business that's out there, you know, almost without an exception, you're going to have someone doing accounting or financial work. And by that, I mean, there's, there's many, many aspects to accounting, whether it be, you know, preparing financial statements or uh, managing accounts payable or treasury or investments or man, uh, working in a tax department, uh, you know, collecting from vendors uh, or from uh, customers, credit and collections, uh, project accounting, you know, there are so many areas in the field you can work in. And and this may be true for PAs, you know, in terms of different, whether you work at a hospital or a doctor's office or a home visiting uh, organization, I bet you in your area, you've also picked a career that's that's very employable in different types of organizations. Yes, exactly. I was just going to say, it sounds like there's a lot of similarities in our roles where there probably will be a need for both CPAs and PAs for many years to come. And we do, as a profession, do love our lateral mobility, meaning that we can change specialties throughout our careers. So if you start in one area of medicine and you're like, oh, this isn't really for me, you can try a different area, which is wonderful. And it sounds like that's the case for CPAs too, that you're able to try different areas of accounting and see what works well for you. Yeah, that's exactly exactly right. Uh, you know, and I also while you were talking there, I was thinking uh, one of my daughter's uh, friend is uh, is an RN and, and she's actually uh, working in Colorado as a traveling nurse. Yeah. And you know, she's young and and she's mobile. And she just stepped back and said, hey, where do I want to be? And I, I think I want and she's she's climbing all the 14000 foot mountains in Colorado while she does, you know, uh, her nursing awesome. uh, contract up there. And so it, it, it's, it's one of many careers where it's particularly in the medical area where there's such a high demand right now. Uh, it, it's a great place to be. Yeah, definitely. There are locum tenens positions for PAs too, all over the country. And I've heard of nurses doing this. I haven't heard of a PA technically do this yet, but some nurses will sometimes get an RV and travel around the country to different locum positions and live out of their RV as they work those positions. That's really cool. And then the next point, the third point of your financial wins is your 401k participation and match. So do you mind sharing a little bit about that? Sure. You know, um, I, I, I'm a numbers guy, right? I've got spreadsheets and, uh, and, and those type of things. And uh, one of the things that I think people maybe can't visualize in their mind is the impact of compounding and and uh, and and how investing over a long period consistently can really uh, multiply over time and so in my career you know like many of uh, others you know 401ks were kind of new when I first started my job okay. and um, 
When I uh, originally worked, I think you had to be there a year before you could contribute to the 401k. And then I went to another company after working three years in public accounting. And um, they had a sliding scale for matching based on the number of years you were there. But I I initially uh, started putting money into a 401k probably around 25-ish, you know, something like that. And our company had a phenomenal match program. Uh, They would match dollar for dollar up to 6%. And then they would voluntarily contribute 2% for retirement. That's amazing. So if you put in 6%, they put in 8%. Wow. And so that's wonderful. <laughs> can you imagine more, more than doubling your money on day one? I mean, it was absolutely incredible. And, um, and so that was one of those things that I, I, I am very thankful that number one, my employer had the plan and number two, that I participated and, and, uh, you know, and, and I put this in as a win because, um, I, I truly feel like, um, it, it's a major reason that we have assets in a nest egg that uh, that that give us independence. But um, you know, it's it's also one of those realities that, in my mind, there is absolutely no reason for someone that's fifty years old to not have well over a million dollars in a four hundred one k plan if they just participate. Uh, and invest it more so in equities uh, over over that long horizon. Uh, and, you know, you hear many times, you know, when you're, you're not investing, you know, for a 10-year horizon, you're investing for your lifetime, right? Yeah. And so, you know, if you put that money in and, and expose it to higher potential earnings, uh, you will do extremely well. And I, uh, one of, one of my... Uh, Vices was I was probably not as aggressive in terms of leaving it in the full equity side, you know, a hundred percent because well I'm not going to use that money for years, right? Fifty nine and a half is when you can start withdrawing that money without any kind of penalties, but I'm not going to need that money when I'm fifty nine and a half in a in a couple of years. So you know, even so now it, it you know, and, and I've certainly changed my allocation over the years and you know, wised up a little bit, but probably could have been a little more aggressive. But I did run a couple of numbers and, you know, I don't like to use too high returns, but just to to demonstrate a point, you know, if if you put a dollar in the bank and grow it by 10% in 15 years, it works out to be a little over five, $4, okay? It's a dollar the first year, a dollar 10 the second year, you know, goes on down through the process. But if you if you keep adding a dollar every year, that same dollar will be $36. Wow. So if you put a dollar in, then put another dollar in, put another dollar in, they grow every mm-hmm. year. The compounding, it becomes $36, even though you've only put in 15. Nice. So, you know, and, and then, you know, you start to do the math and say, well, what if it's $1,000? What if it's $10,000? Uh, you know, that $10,000 a year, it's $360,000 in 15 years, okay? So uh, you take that and you start to play games with it a little bit. You know, you as a PA, you know, your your compensation will probably go up over time. So as your compensation goes up, if you increase the amount of money you're investing, you know, it will continue to build more momentum 
And, and the earlier those dollars are in there, the longer they can grow and earn more dollars for you. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a simple concept, but the magnitude, you know, where you're saying, wow, um, you know, 4X in terms of the $1 that you don't touch. And there's a thing called Coast Fire where you kind of, you put in a lot of money and you get to a point where you don't have to add anymore. It grows on its own, uh, you know, or, you know, where the more typical situation where you're putting in money over time and in a 401k plan and you're always adding, whether the market's up or the market's down, you're always adding to the nest egg. And so you're, you know, buying them on sale, as they say, after a market correction. And yeah, sometimes you're buying uh, at a higher point. But uh, in, in many books, including The Simple Path to, to Wealth, there's a great chart that has a long-term horizon of the, of the stock market. And it always goes up and to the right. Yeah. Now, granted, back in the 30s, there was like a 10-year problem mm -hmm. there where it was below and flat. But generally, in modern times, it's going to correct and it's going to keep going mm -hmm. up. And um, if you believe that that's going to be the future, even though the history doesn't always get repeated exactly, it's a pretty good guide. And um, and so knowing that you're spending money at, in the case of VTI at $232 or whatever it is today, um, will it be $220 tomorrow? It could. It could also be $240. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so if you know that ultimately it's going to be $250 some point down the road, I'll be happy with the $230 purchase level. Certainly. But anyway... I, I do I do want to add one more point yeah. to that. I looked at the last 401k I had from the long employer. I worked there 19 years. 28% of the balance in that plan was from employer contributions. That's amazing. Let me say that again. 30% of those dollars they gave me. Wow. Okay. That's so awesome. So, so if that doesn't get the message across, participate in your 401k plan, particularly if you're getting matched. It's, it's really critical. Definitely. Thanks for sharing all of that. And then the next point that you have under your financial win category is debt freedom. Do you mind sharing about that? Yeah, I'd be glad to. That, that is something that, you know, there's a lot of talk and posts and comments where people talk about paying off your mortgage or, uh, you know, or investing. And, you know, this is, this is one that's probably a strong personal preference. But for me, um, I had a situation where my company was being bought. And, you know, uh, I looked to my wife and I said, you know what, I think, I think we ought to just pay the house off. We had saved some money and, um, and that way, you know, when I lose my job, because I was working in a corporate uh, role and let me just be real, real clear here. When one big company buys another big company, the corporate guys from the purchaser usually win. Okay. <laughs> so I was expecting to lose my job. And, um, and at that point I, I wanted to kind of bring down our fixed cost so that we would have a smaller burn rate, you know, meaning, you know, banking, uh, paying all our bills. And so if you take the mortgage out of that equation, that's a big check you don't have to write. And so, um, yeah, you could argue that, well, you can just pay that from savings over time. You know, I, I, at that point, we just, um, we just wanted to rest easy at night. And so, um, we paid off the mortgage and became debt-free. 
And I, I began to work on finding a, another job because uh, I fully expected to lose my job. Um, and, and I have this manila folder that I wrote in big letters, plan B on the front. And when we were moving from one house to another, uh, some of my son's friends were helping us get stuff out of the attic and clean out the house. And, and he comes down and he says, well, what is this? Uh, you know, he's walking down those pull down stairs from the attic. <laughs> he said, what is this folder that says plan B on it? I said, let me tell you something about plan B. You always need to be thinking about plan B if plan A doesn't work out. And um, that was my folder with all the leads for other companies where I was going to look for another job. Sure. And um, so long story short, fortunately, I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't end up leaving the company. I uh, I took a role at a, a couple levels lower in the organization, but it was a life decision for us because we had kids in middle school and high school, and really didn't want to, you know, pull them all out and and move to a, a, a bigger city and and pursue another job. So, you know, it was. It was a situation where I had a lot of goodwill in the company where I was working. I'd been there seven years and and had a lot of relationships, and so I, uh, we decided that I'd stay there and and end up taking a, a role at a, at a different level. And it took me about five years to get back up to the executive level where I was when we were bought out. But uh, you know, it all worked out. You know, everybody stayed here. They all grew up in the same town and graduated from you know the same high school and and have friends that they'll have the rest of their lives uh, and, and experiences, you know, it was worth every, every possible situation for us, you know, financially and otherwise to, to do, to do exactly what we did. Uh, but you don't see it. And when you're in the moment, you see, I've got a, uh, I took a 25 or 30 or 35% pay cut. What it, what it turned out to be sure. uh, maybe a larger. And, and so you can't do those things if you don't have a little cushion, you know, if you haven't kind of planned for those type of surprises and having, you know, emergency funds and other things. And the, the next item we'll talk about will will be one of the reasons why that was a possibility for us. Yeah, definitely. Before we go on to the next item, I think that it's very important to point out that although you and I are all about making more income, if we can, obviously, being in the financial independence podcasting realm, so to speak, you do have to evaluate the life decisions and the value of your time when you are looking at a position too. If a position sounds great, but you're going to be commuting an hour each way, then maybe it's not the best job for you because even though the pay is really good, you're missing out on time with your friends and family. So it's really important to not just look at the compensation number for the job that you are wanting to get, but also take into consideration all those other points. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's not all about one number. You know, it's not all about the paycheck. It, it, it is about how it affects your entire life and, and the relationships around you. Um, so excellent point. Definitely. And then the fifth financial win that you have had was cash options. Do you mind sharing what you mean by that? Yeah, you know, um, I, I this is one point that I, I share a lot with my my kids growing up is you know having cash gives you options sure. and and by that I mean a lot of things you know it's a positive thing or a negative surprise you know uh, if you uh, let's say you're in in the potential 
uh, market for a rental property. Well, if you don't have the money to purchase that rental property, you really don't have the means to execute on the plan to, to buy a rental property. And if you think it's something you're interested in, you've done the research and you know what's involved in being a landlord, um, and you have the cash set aside, you're in the driver's seat. When the when the right property comes up at the right price point and the right condition and the right location, 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 as they say, then you can spring on that property. And, and so, you know, on the, on the upside, if you want a, a rental property and you have the cash set aside to, to make that purchase, uh, whether you pay for it in full or, or finance it, um, you, you have the ability to do those things and take action. Uh, you know, on the downside, you know, um, having uh, several cars in the family and, you know, I, I can say it, it's only, worse when you have three kids that are drivers and you have five vehicles in the fleet. Somebody's always going to need tires. Somebody's always going to have an air conditioner that breaks. You know, there are going to be surprises. And if you, you know, walk through life thinking that those surprises will never happen, uh, you're going to have a wake-up call one day. And so uh, having that having that cash set aside or emergency fund uh, is is really important, but also maybe a larger fund for opportunities. And and this kind of you know works against some of the tenets of investing because you know if you have that cash available, you know one one train of thought is you need to have it in the market so it can grow. Well, it's hard to believe, but the market does go up and down, <laughs> and sometimes it shrinks. Yeah. And so. If you think you're going to buy a rental property, you've got a hundred thousand dollars set aside to buy that rental property. You put it in the market, and and we have COVID, and then the house you want to buy, you know, comes available, and that hundred thousand is now only seventy thousand. Sure. And will that still make the transaction work? And you know, maybe, maybe not. You know, maybe you have to shop for a different property. But my point is, you you obviously don't want to put everything at risk, and realize that you know. The equity market is truly risky. And and if you've only been investing for the last five or six years, you think, okay, well, we know how COVID happened. That it bounced right back within, you know, eight, nine months. We're we're way over. And so that is not the kind of horizon that you have. I hate to say it, if you're a little more mature or older and you live through the 87 one and you live through the dot-com crash mm -hmm. and you live through Y2K. Um you live through uh, the flash market crash or whatever, and you, and then you actually went through the financial crash, uh, which was probably in most people's memory, uh, and and the opportunities that were created. Also, if you have that money on the sidelines, I hate to say this is against the word market timing, but you know, you 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 have an opportunity to put more into the market when that opportunity uh, presents itself. So uh, with less risk, because the chances of the market dropping another 30% are a lot less probably than the market recovering. Sure. That makes sense. And then the sixth win that you have had is living below your means. Do you mind sharing about that and how you'd advise that others do that? Yeah, ab absolutely. You know, um, I mentioned the how, how important it is to have a the spouse that's on the same page and spending and, and things like that. But the biggest point here on living below your means is as my income went up 
and we did not necessarily expand our lifestyle dramatically. Now, yeah, we might have you know done a few things along the way, um, you know, but could I have had two BMWs in the driveway? Yeah. <laughs> could I have given my kids brand new cars when they turned 16 like some neighbors did? Yeah, I could have done sure. that. That's not me. Yeah. That's not me. You know, so as my pay began to go up, you know, we lived in the same house for, uh, let's see, 20 years. Uh, it, it didn't change. You know, it was, it, it was, it was plenty house for, for our, our needs. Uh, you know, and I say plenty, you know, it's four bedroom, um, what, uh, three bath. That's, that's a lot mm-hmm. of house, you know, and I, and I, so we had, uh, and I had a study in it. So yeah, we probably bought more house than we should have bought when the kids were little, but we also never moved to another house yeah. after that. So, um, you know, we enjoyed the house, uh, and, and the environment we had, uh, we, we didn't need a, uh, a bigger status symbol, if you will, to say, Hey, I'm successful. I got enough money to buy a bigger house. You know, it, they they have this concept called stealth wealth. You know, there's, or if you read the books, a millionaire next door, things like that, where, you know, one of the secrets is figuring out how to live below your means so that you can grow the gap. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, if you, if you make more than you spend, guess what? There's money left over. Yep. And so by, by living below your means, that fuel that's left over, that money that's left over can be invested. It can grow. Uh, you know, you can, if you decide to diversify into real estate, you can spend it on a, a rental property, you know, but that's, that's the critical ammunition you have to get to financial independence. And, and if, if you're spending everything you make, you're never going to build any financial assets. Um, you know, um, you know, without, you know, exception there, there's probably, you know, uh, yes, I, I have a large house. I have a mortgage. Eventually I'll have it paid off and I'll have an asset. Well, that's true, but there's a lot of people will tell you that your house may not be a good investment. Sure. <laughs> you know, you know, uh, we sold our house for, uh, almost twice as much as we paid for it. But you know, over 19 years, doubling your money, that's really not good. Yep. That's really not that's really not awesome. And guess what? All along the way we're paying property taxes mm-hmm. and replacing air conditioners and you know it goes on and on. So it's something that we valued as a place to live for our family, but it was not an investment, you know. <laughs> and so uh you know it you could argue it was a, it was an investment, but it wasn't the greatest investment. You know, it worked out like a typical real estate does work out, you know, and unless you're in the pockets of the country that you know, Tesla announced they're relocating to, uh, you know, you, you're probably not going to have crazy high real estate appreciation. So just something to think about. Uh, but living below your means provides the resources to build wealth. Yeah, that's wonderful. And going back to what you had said about stealth wealth, it's funny, people will say that they want to be a millionaire, but usually that means that they just want to spend a million dollars. And it's really the opposite <laughs> To be able to become a millionaire, you have to save that million dollars. And so it's another phrase that you'll often hear is don't keep up with the Joneses. Everyone's trying to keep up with the Joneses, but you actually shouldn't keep up with the Joneses because they are probably broke. Even if they look rich, they probably are spending all their money on their too big of a house that they need, their too fancy car that they need, their fancy purse, their fancy shoes. 
the latest iPhone, but if you were to evaluate their net worth, their assets, they probably aren't as rich as they look. So thanks for sharing that advice. I think that it's really important to prevent lifestyle creep, but it's hard to do. It it really is. And uh, Thomas Stanley, you know, the Millionaire Next Door author, wrote another book called Stop Acting Rich. Sure. And in that book, he calls those people you just described the glittering rich, where they're basically, you know, all flash and no cash. Okay. So <laughs> they got the BMWs, they got the big house, they got a mortgage, they got two car loans, they might be leasing two cars. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And and in that book, they talk about what the um in Millionaire Mind, which is another one of his books, uh, you know, he talks about what the real millionaire's doing. You know, he's not buying the top shelf liquor. He's wearing a Timex watch. He's driving a Toyota or a Honda or a Chevy. You know, <laughs> you start looking at the facts and you realize, really, the wealthy people really live a much more modest lifestyle than you realize. Sure. And 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 that allows them to grow the gap. Yes. And to spend on what values them. And, you know, there's an example of one guy in the book that owns thousands of acres of East Texas timberland. And and he drives an old car and and, and he lives a pretty modest life and he does good things in the community. Um, and, and and it's just not what you think. It's it's not the Hollywood millionaire. Yes. So yeah. excellent points. My first job out of PA school, I worked for this doc who had started his own business. And then he was bought out by a larger company. But anyway, he was an internal medicine rheumatology physician. And, you know, that's a pretty good combo, so to speak, in medicine. That's a very specialized specialty. And then his wife was a headshot lawyer, and they didn't have any kids. So you could imagine him, you know, starting this clinic and them having great jobs that they were probably both very wealthy. But he would always tell us PAs that worked with him. He would say, oh, yeah, look at this. I got this at Goodwill. And I used to think that this was just ridiculous. I was like, Dr. So-and-so, you shop at Goodwill? He's like, oh, yeah. He's like, this is a $100 shirt, and I got it for $7. And I used to think that this was the craziest thing ever. But he truly was somebody who was spending on the things that he valued and not trying to spend a ton of money on really fancy clothes or suits if you don't need to. So I thought that was a great story. Yeah, absolutely. And I was looking around behind me here to see if I had my shoes in the room. But uh, we, my wife and I recently went on a trip, uh, a two-week trip, uh, the delayed 30th anniversary trip, uh, because our anniversary happened uh, in COVID year. But I had bought some new shoes. And I, I got them on the clearance wall, you know, in the in the store. And I was like, okay, I got these $140 running shoes for 80 nice. bucks, you know. And, and, and I got this other pair of casual shoes that was, you know, like $65 or $70 shoes for 30 bucks. And I'm like, I am all over that kind of stuff. <laughs> and that's really the way I live. <laughs> and uh, I, I could go on on that yeah, one. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, good points. Yeah. Good points. And then your seventh and final financial win that you would like to share with us is diversification. So tell us about how you use diversification throughout your life. Well, this is uh, something obviously uh, investments come to mind when you talk about diversification. And, and by that, I mean uh, within the investment category, maybe buying in different sectors, 
you know, or also buying, you know, an allocation of stocks or bonds or real estate investment trust. But by having some diversification, you know, you don't you don't have as much exposure to a smaller, uh, a concentrated risk. And 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 one of the things that that helped me was, you know, for sure, on, in the case of 401k options, most of them are all, you know, mutual funds or ETFs or things where you're going to be diversified within those investments in most cases. Uh, but but the after-tax money where, you know, the the innovation of online stock trading and, you know, being able to buy a stock and pay a $7 commission or whatever the number was back then, compared to back in the early days when I started investing in You'd call a broker and you'd buy a stock and it would be a $35 commission. Then when you wanted to sell it, it'd be $35. Well, if you can imagine, you know, uh, you, when you only have a $1,000 to invest, $35 fee on the buy and sell transaction is pretty substantial. But, uh, you know, that's not how it is today. Most of the online uh, brokerage houses are all no commission on on ETFs and stocks and um, but having diversification helped uh, a lot because, you know, any one area could go down, but it wouldn't affect the whole portfolio significantly. Because remember, good news is uh, also out there, not just bad news. So if one stock dropped, another stock might go up and, and wipe out that loss. Uh, in some cases, I had investments that went down to essentially zero. Uh, and I had others that tripled their money. So, you know, uh, I, I've also moved away from individual stocks significantly uh, in my later years. But having diversification within both the, the, the types of investments, uh, as well as the, you know, the allocation to bonds and, and income type investments. And then, you know, in, in the case of real estate, owning a, a rental property uh, is another way to diversify or even your house, because. Um, the house you live in is if if you own it is is real estate, and so, as I mentioned earlier, may not be the best investment, but I can tell you the dirt probably is not going to go to zero, so you know e- even if your house burns down there 's still a lot there yeah. right uh, that 's an extreme example, but my point is if the stock market melts down sixty percent in a year, your real estate probably won 't drop sixty percent you know. Um, and so in a way that's part of the approach of, to being diversified. And, uh, and I think it, it makes sense over time, but particularly within the financial side sectors and, and, um, and stocks and bonds, uh, or real estate investments or other alternatives that make sense, uh, were, w- was a good approach. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for sharing the seven financial wins that you've had over the years. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope that you decide to continue to join me along this journey of becoming a PA the FI way. Please take a moment to press the subscribe button on the platform that you are listening to this on, but more importantly, consider sharing with another current or future PA that could benefit from the information that we reviewed in this episode. Take care and have a great rest of your day. Until next time.